Well, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke on the second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of Peace, as we continue to explore how the Prince of Peace uh, came to this world. And we will be, uh, it just works out so good this year. <clears throat> I was, uh, I finished mapping out all the way through uh, Christmas, the sermons, and uh, we'll be able to actually uh, carry Luke, uh, our kind of exposition of Luke, even through the uh, Eve, Eve service on, into Christmas morning. So we'll, and it, it just uh, lines up uh, perfectly. So it would be really good study. Let's uh, read from verses 5 to 25 this morning of Luke's Gospel. Uh, verses 1 to 4, sort of the dedication, the introduction, his purpose statement for the Gospel. To teach Theophilus, uh, to give him an orderly account of the things that took place so that he and, of course, us, as the Holy Spirit is intended, might have certainty concerning the things we've been taught about Jesus. So let's pick up at verse 5 in God's uh, inerrant, inspired, and holy word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And we thank God for his word and ask him now to help us understand, learn, and apply its truths. Well, something new is happening for sure. The Old Testament period has come to an end, and there is a new age beginning. And John the Baptist as he is, his birth is being foretold here for us, he is the link between the Old and New Testaments. He is, in some way, the final Old Testament prophet. 
And in other ways, he's the first of the New Testament prophets before the final prophet, priest, and king comes in the person of Jesus Christ. His role was to be a herald, to herald the Messiah, not merely to announce, but to make ready, to prepare the people of God, to reveal the hearts of the people, and to measure them against God's concerns and against God's word. So John the Baptist, and then finally Jesus, provide for us the transition from the old to the new. And in this transition, there are really a bunch of contrasts that point to the overwhelming glory of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. John the Baptist has a, wonder, has a wonderful beginning, for he, like Jesus, is announced by an angel, named by that same angel, called to a ministry, fulfilling God's purposes. And what I think Luke intends for us to see here is that these two scenes announcing the births of John and announcing the births of Jesus are seen in parallel, and they kind of speak to one another. We're mostly going to speak about John the Baptist this morning, and next Sunday we'll speak about the, the prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus, but we'll note, sort of hold in your mind the stuff we learn about John today for next Sunday, because we will contrast in some ways the way Mary responds versus the way that Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth respond, and they interact with one another, and then we have two scenes uh, of, followed by the meeting of the two mothers-to-be, Mary's prayer of thanksgiving, the two births also told in parallel form, and finally events that happen after their births that round out chapter 2. And the key is that the, this divine mystery that John is coming, is, uh, as he's called to be the forerunner to the long-expected Messiah, has now been revealed. And uh, the emphasis in this case is not on the inferiority of John, because he is prophesied in Scripture, is that the new age really begins with his story as he becomes the forerunner and the foreteller of Jesus Christ. The real importance of John the Baptist, of course, to history simply shows even further the infinite importance of Jesus the Messiah because John sets us up. He prepares us as the uh, coming as like Elijah as foretold in Malachi or Malachi. Uh, and, uh, and we now see the fulfillment of that in the coming of John uh, the Baptist. So let's, uh, let's work through our text together and see how this is done for us. And uh, the first thing we see in the, in the bulk of this chapter, verses 5 to 17, is, is simply setting the scene, providing for us uh, the, uh, the, the images. You know, when, when you, you make a movie, you have, to, you have to have someone that plans the set and, and then dresses the set, so someone has to build a set, and they have to put props and stuff in it so that it looks lived in and filled, and, and I remember... Uh, being down um, on uh, 25th Street in Ogden one, I think it was a June day, it was hot. We're walking down and there's like snow everywhere. And I was going, what in the world? And there's wreaths up. And I'm like, we walk into you know, Rivali's or someplace and ask, are they, are they filming like a Hallmark movie or something here? And sure enough, they were, because that's, that's when they film them. So it's always interesting to think when Nikki's watching all those horrible uh, made-for-TV Netflix Christmas movies, um, that she even admits are horrible, but they're not good. Their acting is cheesy. The stories are cheesy, but she has a, a, some sort of guilty pleasure watching them. Um, but they're all filmed like in the summers. So you, all these people are bundled up in coats, and all I imagine is just them sweating profusely through their uh, parkas as it's you know, 95 degrees outside and there's fake snow on the ground. Um, but that's the case whenever you have a movie. It's, there's an artificiality here. Well, no artificiality in this story. 
But there is a setting. There is a scene. There is our images, I think, that are supposed to be conjured in our minds. And so you have to do some of that art direction yourself this morning. Uninspired, of course, uh, it is. But uh, nonetheless, I think we are called, uh, called, being called to uh, think about the setting of what's going on here. Luke introduces us to three people. And he says these events took place in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there in verse 5. So the date is around 7 to 6 B.C. We know this because we have pretty accurate records from the Romans that King Herod died in 4 B.C. And so this seemingly takes place a few years before that, especially because we know by the time that uh, he gets word about Jesus and everything, he asks for children two years and younger to be slaughtered. And so uh, you put all of that together, and we don't know for sure, but somewhere between 7 and 6 B.C. is probably a good guess of when these events are taking place. All that we know about Herod is that he was a cruel and vindictive ruler, a cruel and vindictive man. He even killed many of his own relatives, a few of his sons, uh, in order to protect himself and preserve his own power. The scriptures tell us on its own what kind of man he was, uh, because again, he's the one who orders the killing of the innocent babies of Bethlehem after he discovers that a king of the Jews has been born there in accordance with prophecy. And so he orders, this is in Matthew's account, he orders all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under uh, to be slaughtered. But the first person we meet in the gospel is actually a priest, and his name was Zechariah. Zechariah, the name means the Lord remembers, which is uh, pretty important for uh, the text, isn't it? Luke tells us that he was of the priestly division of Abijah, from the time of David, the priests were divided into 24 divisions, which is 24 is a symbolic number for Israel, 2 times 12, so two, two priestly divisions or groups amongst all the 12 tribes. Uh, and Abijah was one of the heads of the priestly families, we're told in Nehemiah 12 and 1 Chronicles 24. We, we, heard, we learn about uh, uh, Abijah. And so he comes from this group, Zechariah does. And so that... We, we see our first introductions and we're introduced to the context, the context in which this story is going to take place. And really, the context is not so much the where, but the, the what about what is happening, and that is earthly power versus God's people. That's what's being contrasted for us in these opening even verses, because Luke begins his gospel by giving us portraits or, or just reminders of two, two men. We have Herod and we have Zechariah. And he really introduces us at the very beginning of the gospel to a believing remnant in Israel that existed, right? That he introduces us to the likes of those um, such as Elizabeth and Zechariah. We have Mary and Joseph. We have Simeon and Anna. These are, we might call these people Old Testament believers. They were those who were faithful to God. They were clinging to Yahweh. They were waiting for his promises to be filled. They were trusting in his kingdom to come. And we find them here at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Not all of Israel was believing, of course, but throughout its history, there was always a believing remnant that God had kept for himself. And as Luke, our historian, notes, it all happened in the days of Herod, king of Judah. And it's as if Luke is contrasting for us and saying, you know, if you want the historical context, if you want what was happening in the world, in the area, well, yeah, it took place during King Herod's reign. And you might think he's the important one in this story because he's the king after all, isn't he? But it's as if Luke says, but that's not what is most significant. If you want to know what's significant, it has to do with an obscure priest named Zechariah from an obscure order within the priesthood, that of Abijah. 
And he's hidden away, as we'll see later on, in the hill country of Judea. He's someone that nobody other than his family and friends and co-workers would have even known his name. That he is who's really important in this story. It is, again, not the king on the throne, but the one who will come to announce the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Luke almost seems to delight in the strange and obscure focus of the gospel. That it has a backdrop of secular history, but the attention falls on this group of believers in Israel, the servants that God has kept and who call upon his name. And this is going to prove typical, actually, throughout Luke's gospel, to make some prominent ruler provide just the background and the context and then focus on someone who at first glance would seem utterly inconsequential. And that yet is who God is interested in. Well, we meet Zechariah, the Lord remembers, and we also meet Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron, you know, the, the high priest. And priests were allowed to marry from any tribe, but if a priest married another priest's daughter, well, that was considered to be a double blessing. And so Zechariah had a double blessing in his wife, and it was often said of an excellent woman, this is just in, in Israel writings, that she deserves to be married to a priest, that that was a, a saying. And so Elizabeth... Her name means, my God is an oath, or the reliable one. And uh, so you see, God remembers the reliable uh, one. These are the names of these two individuals. Interesting, isn't it? Now consider the contrast between Herod and this couple. Herod was terrible, right? Herod was terrible, frightened of losing his power, a disgraced Israel seeking to hold on to power at anything, even if it meant killing his own family members. And how different from the character qualities point out, uh, that Luke points out for us in Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 6 says that they were both righteous before God. Before God, meaning before the face of God in front of him, refers to their standing in God's sight. And Luke shows how that right standing plays out in the rest of verse 6 when he tells us that they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, Luke doesn't mean that they were sinless, of course. No, they weren't sinless. No one is without sin except for Jesus. But what Luke, what Luke does mean is that this elderly couple were faithful, and they, they were sincere about keeping God's ordinances, following God's word, loving the law of the Lord with all that they could. Everything about these people was the very opposite of Herod, and that's the first really contrast we see, even as Luke sort of sets the context for us. And here's the marvelous thing. Here's a marvelous thing. You barely step out of the pages of the Old Testament, and here you run into the people of God, right? 400 years of silence, 400 years of no prophet in the land, 400 years of not hearing God's word, 400 years of wondering and waiting, and yet, at the very beginning of the gospel story, we're immediately introduced. Yes, we see the, the cultural context of Israel. They're being ruled by the Romans. They're being ruled by an unfaithful, wicked king. And yet, in the midst of this, they're still a faithful people, that God is continuing his story through. Israel has come through the Babylonian exile, Persian domination, through Antiochus Epiphanes. They're under the thumb of the Romans, but God always has a faithful people. No matter how dark the world may seem, no matter how bad things may be going, God is still at work, isn't he? And look at them. There they are. Zach and Liz, as I like to call them. What glorious stubbornness on the part of our faithful God to preserve through difficult times a people who would hold tight to his word. And oh, that in a culture that is ever more becoming dark and pulling away and turning away and slapping the face of Christianity, 
that we would be people who would hold tight and fast to God's word, who would not give in to cultural movements, who despite being led by wicked rulers, that we would say we will trust in the Lord because we have a God who remembers, a God who keeps his promises and keeps his oaths. May we learn from Zach and Liz even in our day. So there's the, the context. But then we get the rest of the cast. And who is our cast of characters? But uh, again, not the A-listers, not the box office draws, but the fellowship of the barren. And the God of the impossible is who we're introduced to, isn't it? There's a sad note when we meet this couple, because what we know about them, after we're told how gloriously wonderful they were, how they uh, were, were holy and godly, not perfect, but godly, the sad note comes that this couple was un, has been unable to have children, that Elizabeth is barren. And there's not much hope for a child now because they're both advanced in years. So the positive and the negative about their lives is side by side. They were both righteous before God and they had no children, verses 6 and 7. And yet there's almost a, we could almost say that they were righteous before God despite having no children. Because especially in that culture, your, your kids were really important. Uh, for your social standing. That's how you passed down in, in the lineage. That's who you, your, your stuff went to. That's who your, your name went to. And we, we still have that a bit in our culture, but I don't think it's quite the same. It's, it's no cultural taboo. It's no cultural shame not to be able to have kids. But of course, in their day, it would have even been, you know, whispered quietly, what about Zach and Liz about them? Would make God so unkind to them that he wouldn't give them children? And though we're told that they were righteous in God's sight, that they were godly and holy people, well, people around them must have thought, oh, surely there's some deep hidden sin that has not been brought to light that is keeping them from having kids. And it would be easy for people like that to scoff against God and to say, well, why do I continue pursuing holiness when you're not giving me what I want, when you're not providing me what I want? And yet, Zachariah and Elizabeth give us a beautiful picture of keeping on pursuing God's law, keeping on pleasing the Lord even when, they don't give, when he doesn't give you what you think you really want the most. And this is a combination that's normal in the Bible. There are those who are the true servants of the Lord, and yet there is a trial or a disappointment that may be lifelong that hangs over their lives, righteous before God and yet having no children. A, a huge fact, a deep sadness pressed right together. And there is, of course, when we are told this, we are surely supposed to connect Zechariah and Elizabeth to that fellowship of the barren throughout the Bible. A similarity, particularly between the Old Testament couple of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, if that doesn't come to our minds when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, we just haven't read Genesis long enough and, you know, recently enough. And those three descriptions in verses 6 and 7, righteous, childless, and elderly, they all uh, you know, parallel Abraham and Sarah's story in the book of Genesis. But not just Abraham and Sarah, but you have Elkanah and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, by the way. And the parallel with Hannah will come, uh, become even more clear in Mary's song that we'll look at in uh, the end of this chapter next week. But what with Elizabeth's barrenness and what follows, I think Luke is showing us how God often does his most impressive work in the context of human impossibility. Because God wants us to see him at work. God wants us to make sure that he receives the credit. And so he does his miraculous work in the midst of the impossible. 
And so Elizabeth is an unlikely mother, of course, here, just like the list of unlikely mothers that we could rattle off from the Old Testament. But strangely, gloriously we know, Elizabeth is runner-up for most unlikely mother of the year in Luke chapters 1 and 2, isn't she? Because Mary is even more unlikely, not old, but certainly as a virgin, unable to conceive a child. Sarah is the first biblical pattern of this. You can read about her in Genesis 18. Everyone knew 90-year-old Sarah couldn't have a son, except that she did in Genesis 21, because promises of God always trump earthly genetics. And then Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was barren for the first 25 years of their marriage until their twins, Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, were born in Genesis 25. Rachel was childless until Joseph was born, Genesis 30. Judges 13, we meet Manoah. She was barren, but as God promised, she gave birth to Samson, who becomes a little bit important. You could include even Ruth, who had not had children in her first marriage, and with Boaz, proves to be able to have children. Obed is the proof of that relationship. Hannah had a horrid emotional roller coaster over her barrenness, 1 Samuel 1, until God gave her Samuel. Nor should we forget the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4 and her unnamed son. And it's just all over here, right? That all backs up what we see here in Luke 1, that God tends to begin his finest works in the midst of human hopelessness and human weakness. That is when people are brought to their ends. It's when we think that there's nothing we can do that God says, exactly, this is where I work. I work in the miraculous. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and what do dead people do? Well, they don't do much. We're all part of the barrenness, for we all need new birth. We all enter into the family of God from a state of helplessness, weakness, and, and hopelessness. It is out of our, it is only when we come to the realization that we have no hope without God in this world, that we are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins, that, that God then does the work in bringing us to new life in Christ. This is the way God works. So we have the setting. The, the kind of historical context of Herod this time. We have introduced ourselves to our cast of characters, and then we get brought on to the location, which is the holy place of the temple. This is where this will happen. The temple was the place, of course, where God's presence was made manifest in a very special way. Worship was offered up, and it was offered up by thousands of priests. And to make it possible for most of the priests to have some opportunity to do work and offer their sacrifices in the temple. Each division of priests served in there for one week, twice a year. And their task was to offer incense and prayers and make sacrifices on behalf of the, the people of Israel. And every day at the morning and evening sacrifices, one of the priests would be selected by lot to go into the holy place, not the most holy place, not the inner sanctuary, but just in that outer room. And he actually would pick two guys to come with him. They would help him do some preparations. They would both leave, and then he would finish the task on his own. And he would offer prayers and incense to God while he stood before that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies or the most holy place. And, of course, that's the same veil that when Christ died, that veil in the temple was split from top to bottom. And it was hugely tall. It was inches thick. This was a massive veil. And, of course, the death of Christ opened up the presence of God to all believers. The priests are standing in there for the people, approaching the throne of God. And yet only the great high priest and only on Yom Kippur could go beyond that veil. But that's where this story takes place. The story at the beginning of, this, uh, of all of this 
events that ultimately bring us access to God begins with this godly priest named Zechariah right here in that holy place. Chosen, we're told in verse 9, by lot to offer the incense. Now, this would have been probably a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah. We don't know for sure, but at this time, according to Jewish records, there were 18,000 priests in Israel. 18,000 priests. And they were divided into 24 divisions, each with several orders consisting of eight or nine families. Each priestly division responsible for supplying the priests in the temple complex for two weeks a year. So only two weeks out of the year would Zechariah have been in there. And then in his group, uh, he has to be selected for one of the, um, the offerings to go in by lot. And so he may have never been chosen before. But at the very least, this is not something that happens every day, right? Often we think of priests and we think that they went in there every day and did this stuff. But no, with 18,000 priests, a lot of priestly duties were doing a lot of other things. And only rarely did they actually serve in the temple. And only even rarer did they serve in the burning of the incense within the holy place. And so this may have been one of the few times in his entire life, maybe the only time that he had the opportunity to do this. It was a a great privilege, a great honor, something that came with great seriousness because you were offering prayers for the people of God near to the presence of God, only steps away, inches away from the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of the Lord, where Yom Kippur sacrifices would be made. The place where they were so afraid that if you did something wrong, God might destroy you. When the time came, there we have Ozak in there, going through his routine that he's supposed to do. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside. It's the evening prayer time, likely. And they were in the outer court of the temple. And what, use, what usually happened is the three guys would go in there. There would be lighting of incense and setting things on the altar. The two would leave. The priest who was acting as priest that day would offer the prayers before the Lord. And when he would stand up, he would then come out before the people and pronounce the ironic blessing after the offering of the incense from number six. It's the one that we say sometimes, that the Lord bless you. He would hold his hands up above the people, and the people receive the blessing of the Lord on behalf of the sacrifices and the incense and the prayers offered in the, most, in the holy place. And he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance, or the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This is what they expected to happen. Two priests come out. There's a short period of time, a few minutes where prayers are offered. Incense is lit. And then the the, the priest of the day would come out, carrying with himself, you know, almost the the smoke of the incense billowing out with him and carrying upon his own person the odor of the incense to represent the fact that he had been near God. He had offered their prayers and then he would bless them. That's what the people were expecting. And there in the holy place, his duties discharged. He, he, he kneels and closes his eyes to pray. He offers his prayer, and he's prepared to back out of the sanctuary because you did not turn your back upon the Lord. And there as he backs up, standing beside him, beside the golden altar, is a shining angel. And Zechariah is standing on the right side of the altar. The angel stood on the south side between the altar and the golden lampstand, that giant menorah in the temple. And the priest is afraid, and he had every right, right to be. You know, again, we get, uh, you know, kind of cultural depictions of angels. And they're very beautiful and 
Surely angels can be beautiful. But when you read descriptions of angels in the Bible, and we read in particular the descriptions of people who run into angels in the Bible, it is not like, oh, hey, an angel. It is terror. But especially think of Zechariah. He's in the temple. This is not something he does every day. He's to offer prayers on behalf of the people. This is both a, uh, a, this is a, as holy a place as there is other than the most holy place. It's the second most holy room in the entire universe that he is in. And he has to offer the prayers. He has to offer the rituals just as Moses had been led by God to, to describe how they should be done. Just as Aaron and the succession of priests had done for thousands of years. And the worry was, of course, that if you do it wrong, that you might be struck down by God because of your disobedience. That God's wrath would be poured on you as a priest because you did not offer the sacrifices correctly. You did not offer the prayers correctly, and God would not have that. And so when he sees this angel, I think he's afraid because, one, he wasn't expecting anybody to be there. And anybody gets startled when they're not expecting something. I like to, when my dad is on the front porch, I can, my phone tells me that my ring, you know, we have the ring doorbell, and it tells me that he's out there, and I like to turn on the speaker and go, Hah! and uh, watch him jump a little bit, you know? Because he's not expecting anybody to be at him on the front porch. Well, how much more? An angel is there speaking to you. And then you think maybe you did something wrong, and you're about to be killed. And he's in terror, afraid, brought face to face with a messenger from another world, from heaven. Well, that's the setting. It's a pretty amazing setting, isn't it? What's the message he then receives? We see that in verses 13 to 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. The angel knew. The angel understood. His first words hushing the growing terror that was taking possession of this old priest. And he called him by his name. The angel knew him, understood his anxieties, and says, your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer was that? He had just been kneeling, praying. But, of course, Zachariah and Elizabeth had been praying, likely, for a child for many, many years. I don't know if they'd given up. It seems like they probably had because they were so old, not thinking that they could have a child. Well, in actuality, it's probably both. The initial context seems to be the prayer of a child, that those prayers that they had prayed that God had seemingly not answered, God hadn't answered because it wasn't the right time for them to have a child. So those prayers were going to be answered. But in another way, the prayers that he would have been praying in that room that day were also being answered because this was the beginning of what would eventually lead to the coming of the Messiah who would die for the sins of his people and bring in the kingdom, which is exactly the type of prayer that he would have been praying in there, that the, the people of God would be brought to repentance, that, that they would know their God, that God would be their God, that they would be his people, that the Messiah would come and, and rescue them from their distress and bring them into a land of promise. This is the type of prayer he would have been praying, and that's exactly what God was going to do. The angel gave Zechariah the miraculous news, though, that Elizabeth would bear a son, and his name would be called John. John, the name means the gift of God. And this is what he would happen. This is what he would, he would be given. Hebrew names are very significant, and here the birth of John would indeed be a gracious gift from on high. The angel tells of the effects of John's birth. What effect would this child have in verse 14? Well, first, it would have an effect on the parents, of course, 
But beyond them, it would have an effect upon the nation of Israel. Joy and gladness. Now, this rejoicing, of course, is going to be very personal for Zach and Liz. It's going to be corporate and even eschatological. It's going to bring about the coming of things prophesied for those who respond among the Jewish nation. And, of course, not all in Israel find joy in John's ministry. In fact, most don't. Many, though, will be made right with God as they listen to and respond to John's message of repentance and as they are introduced to Jesus through him. And the angel told Zechariah in verse 15 that John would be great before the Lord. Remember, they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were holy and righteous before the Lord. And here he's saying, and your son will be great before the Lord. And we, we, by the way, we need to remember that everything that happens to us and everything that we do is always before the Lord, uh, before the face of God. We cannot hide anything from his all-seeing gaze. And we should want this to be said of us as well. Well, five areas that the angel describes in which John the Baptist's greatness will be measured. He will have a devoted life. The angel says that he must not have wine or other strong drink, and this is a, a, a permanent vow like that of the Nazarites, the Nazarite vow. I encourage you to, to look at uh, Judges chapter 13 to see an example of a Nazarite vow. It's probably also an allusion to Samuel, who took this sort of vow as the first prophet in Israel, and John is also kind of like a, a new first prophet for the, the coming of Christ. And so 1 Samuel 1, you can also read about uh, Samuel's vow, but a devoted life, a, a life devoted to holiness, not having wine or strong drink, even though it was allowed within the nation, because this prophet would have important decisions to make, would need to be sober-minded at all time, devoting himself, vowing before the Lord to keep uh, holy in all ways, above and beyond what God would ask of even an ordinary Israelite. But he would also have an empowered life. He would not have to do this on his own, for he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he was born, he would be filled with the Spirit. He would be, he would be redeemed. He would be saved from in his mother's womb, this miraculous salvation experience, but also filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning empowered by him. The Holy Spirit becomes a major figure, as we mentioned last Sunday, he superintends all of the infancy stories, and he's behind every detail. And his presence is a permanent fixture in John the Baptist's ministry as well as the life of Jesus. He's also to have a redemptive life. His ministry will be a ministry of reformation and redemption for the people of God. He will turn, we're told in verse 16, many Israelites to the Lord their God, rescuing the people of God from apostasy and divine judgment, this was the ministry of Elijah, in fact. If you go back and uh, see in Malachi 2, 3, and 4, it speaks about Elijah's ministry of reformation and that Elijah would come again. Well, the Elijah that's coming again was not Elijah back from the dead, but it was going to be John the Baptist as an Elijah-like prophet. This is John's ministry, to turn people to the Lord, to seek that they repent of their sins and turn to Christ, ultimately. But he would have a prophetic life. He would be a prophet. And his prophetic role was to, as verse 17 tells us, to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. The, be the great spiritual reformer like Elijah was. His ministry in light of Malachi 4 that we read, verses 5 and 6. Elijah prophesied as being sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And the arrival of Jesus the Messiah is part of that coming. John is fulfilling that role 
to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, alluding again to Malachi 4. This refers to social reforms as families will be reunited, so there will be horizontal relationships restored. But ultimately, spiritual reform as disobedient children of God are made right, not just with their parents, but a disobedient nation returning to God and to His wisdom, that there will be a vertical relationship restored through John's ministry. The wisdom of the just would be those in the nation who are following the way of God. So this is an all-embracing revival with restoration and repentance taking place in areas of life from the human family all the way to the family of God. This would happen through John's life, that ultimately he would be pointing people to the Messiah, the forerunner of the Messiah, saying, don't listen to me, but listen ultimately to him. And that's the fifth thing, that he would have an evangelistic life. That John's ministry as the messianic forerunner was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To prepare them. John's ministry fulfilled Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He was to point people. He himself was not the one who was coming. He says of himself, he's not even worthy to tie the sandals of the one who would come. But he is to make ready the people's hearts, to prepare them, to have them where they know that they're sinners in need of salvation and then prepare them to meet their Messiah and to point them out when the time would come. Well, how does John, or how does Zechariah respond? This is the bummer of the story, right? Because he responds in doubt. He responds with doubt instead of with faith. And again, I think this is to contrast with Mary. They say very similar things, but it's the slight change that makes all the difference. Because Gabriel has told Zechariah good news. The first time that Luke uses the word that we connect with the word gospel, the good news of Jesus. John was going to bring joy to many in Israel because he was to be the Elijah-like forerunner of Christ. And the old priest, dumbfounded by both messenger and message, finally finds his words and he speaks doubt. And he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And, And the key difference between what he says and what Mary will say, as we'll look at next week, is Mary says, how can this be? And it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Mary seems to believe, initially, believe Gabriel's message. She believes that it's going to happen. She just doesn't understand how it could happen. How can this this be? But especially in Hebrew, how shall I know this? The emphasis is on no. Basically, he's asking almost for a sign. How can I know this to be true? Because I don't believe you. And that's the subtle difference between Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah wants a sign so that he will believe Gabriel. Mary just doesn't understand how in the world this could take place, but she's going along with it. She believes it. She just doesn't understand it. And he says, I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. He's essentially asking for a sign here. And he gets one, but not the one he would have expected. His doubt is another parallel back with Abraham, who also doubted due to his and Sarah's old age. The angel tells him God is going to answer his prayers, but he stopped believing that it could actually happen. And the angel responds and says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. Now, uh, because uh, of Lord of the Rings, I just imagine there's the scene where Gandalf gets all upset and, and uh, he, he looks down upon Frodo and he, he says something about the ring and there's, the world almost changes around him. That's how I imagine this happened. 
that he goes, you know, how, how shall I know this? How can I believe you, Gabriel? How, how shall I know this? Because I'm old and my wife's old. And I just see Gabriel saying, you know, with this booming almost voice, no, 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 this is, not, this is the Kenny invented text. This is not the uh, inspired text. But just in my mind's eye, I see him saying, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was almost saying, "Do you, you? I appeared to you in the holy place, and I did not destroy you. I'm an angelic being, and you're asking how you can know this? You want a sign, rather? I mean, there's an angel standing in his presence. What more sign could you want? And yet, you know, we hear Zach here going, but could you, could you give me a sign? And he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. He and, and Michael, by the way, the only two angels named in Scripture, Gabriel's name means God is my warrior or God is my hero. And he gives the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. He is God's herald. And he's making an announcement that comes from the throne of God. This would be like the president sending the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to give orders to an airman. And that airman saying, but how do I know it's true? And Zechariah's sign of his questioning words is very fitting. Behold, you will be silent, verse 20, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Since he's unable to believe the promise of God, he will be rendered speechless. He won't be allowed to participate in the process until it's over when the words which will be fulfilled in their time take place. Because God is faithful, even when Zechariah is not. God is in charge, not him. And all of his promises will be fulfilled or come to completion as God in his sovereignty has designed. Now the people outside are confused because it's taking him an awfully long time and I think they think that he might be dead. And they're waiting and they're wondering, but what has Israel as a nation been doing for 400 years? Waiting and wondering for something to come from God. And so what we have here is like a little microcosm of what has been happening to Israel as a nation. We have taking place in the temple court. And Zechariah comes out to the anxious people. And he's unable to bless them. He's unable to proclaim peace upon them because there is no peace yet until things take place. And he makes signs. People finally get it that there's something happened to him inside, a vision, a supernatural appearance. The crowd takes his muteness as something positive, God granting some vision, but we know it's a discipline. Well, he finishes his duties. Eventually, his week-long tour of duty in the temple is over. He returns home, still unable to speak. We're told later in the chapter to that town in the hill country of Judea, south of Jerusalem. But his story, this little bit of the story ends with a, a gracious note. For we're told that what was prophesied did happen. That there we find Zach and Liz recipients of God's grace. But for God tempers his discipline of Zechariah with his gracious gift of their child. The inability to speak will only be temporary. 
And all these things will happen just as God said they would. His wife became pregnant. For five months she remained in seclusion, for she had probably been ashamed for her inability to bear children. For years she may have been hiding away herself, but now she's going to shut herself away until it would become obvious to anyone looking at her that she in fact was with child. And her heart is overwhelmed with happiness and in glorious contrast to Zach, Liz says, thus the Lord has done for me. And the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She had waited for years. She was going to enjoy the joy of this miracle shut up on her own with the Lord. And a faithfulness beyond even that of her husband, it seems, providing a hint of the faith-filled response to an impossible pregnancy that we'll see from Mary. So Luke has introduced us already to a bunch of themes in his gospel. How Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled. How the hopes of the righteous have been fulfilled in the coming of, his, of the forerunner of Jesus and then Jesus himself. That God has come to redeem his people. That the prayers of God's people have been heard. That the Spirit is coming. The way the Spirit would be active in the birth of John the Baptist, even before he's born. Foreshadowing the Spirit's greater activity in Jesus' life. And the ultimate fulfillment of the Spirit's coming involved at Pentecost, when the people of God would be filled with the Spirit. Luke paints a portrait of what an ideal believer looks like. As we have this couple who possessed a righteousness, not simply before others, but most importantly before the Lord. That like these believers, we should pursue godliness. No legalism here, though. These are people who found grace through faith in the promises of God, even a doubting, weak faith at times. But a, a faith that seeks to know how they could live to the glory of God and follow His commands. We find Christological foreshadowing of future events. We don't have Jesus named yet, but we know that the role of Zachariah and Elizabeth's son is to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And as we read this story, we already know how John's birth relates to Jesus in the things that have been fulfilled among us, verse 1, and the things we have been taught, verse 4 of the chapter. But ultimately, even in his faith in the Lord, Zechariah wasn't ready. And we can understand it. We should, I don't know if you're like me, you're not very hard on Zechariah. We understand his, his shaky faith. How many of us would have, much, have fared much better? But notice that even in his inability to speak, there's a note of grace. For if Gabriel's words concerning his speech being stopped was true, then so would his words of having a child come true. And so would his promises from the Old Testament to send a Messiah to rescue his people come true. Because God's plan was unfolding perfectly, as it always does, even if at times God seems silent, even if for 400 years he's been silent, even if for 2,000 years we haven't heard another word, in every work of God there is a great purpose. There is perfect timing and there is a story being written. God does not make mistakes. He is never early and he is never late. And he loves to surprise and delight his people and so as we wait in the silence for the next new thing to happen, which will be the second coming, are we ready? Are we listening to him? Are we ready for his coming? Are we listening to the silent witness 
of Zechariah and trusting in the promises of God to come to pass. They came to pass in Christ's first coming, and we wait with expectant hope for them to come to pass in his second. And that is the hope, is it not, of, of Christmas, of what Advent is all about, waiting and wondering with hope for the coming of our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in this temple, and this prophecy, and this visitation from an angel, and for how it prepares us for Jesus Christ, just as it prepared them to meet the Savior in his first coming. Father, we're thankful that this story leads us by the hand to sit at the feet of our Savior, who would come to fulfill all that was prophesied, and come to provide for us salvation and life everlasting. Would you help us to know Christ more deeply, and to respond even in our shaky faith with, with faith, not asking for signs, not asking for additional miracles beyond what we've been given, but simply asking, Lord Jesus, come. Come to fill our hearts this Christmas. Come to uh, redeem people from their sins. And ultimately, we wait for your coming again to this earth to put all things right, to destroy all sin and wickedness, to conquer ultimately for us the grave that you conquered already for yourself. We long and look for that day. And until that happens, may we believe in faith the truthfulness of your promises, for you are a God who always keeps your word. You are a God who is ever faithful. And you are a God who loves to delight us, your children. So may we take that message deep into our hearts this Christmas. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.